0: Okay, today my guest is Professor Keith Brothers. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Keith as a person, Professor Brothers is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Brothers is an AIB fellow, he has served as Vice President of the AIB, Senior Associate editor at Journal of Management and served on the editorial boards of our top journals. He won the 2012 GIPS Decade Award with his highly cited paper on institutional, cultural and transaction cost influences on entry mode choices and performance. Prior to becoming an academic, he was a CPA, a CMA, and CFO of several small companies. Thank you, Keith, for joining us. Thank you. Uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a
1: child? Ah, a successful businessman, most Seriously. likely a banker, because we used to play Monopoly all the time, <laughs> and I was always the banker and really enjoyed that. Perfect. And uh, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> This is where, where I am. Uh, Very, perfect. Yeah, cold and snowy. Yes, so, it uh,
0: actually snowed. It was May, May uh, 10th, May 8th, oh, uh, me. Let me check. May, May 9th. May 9th, it actually snowed in Ohio.
1: See, yeah, so I don't miss that, I must say. <laughs>
0: OK, uh, can you pinpoint the earliest moment of awareness between domestic versus
1: international? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, probably in, in uh, university when I was getting my degree and they offered courses on international business. Hmm. And uh, what, what made you choose academia? Ah, well, this is actually my second career. So my first career was doing what I thought I always wanted to do, trying to be a successful businessman. and And I had... I did that for about a dozen years and had a fairly good career. Uh, And then uh, I retired from that and was looking around for something else to do. And uh, my older brother, who's also an academic in in AIB, Lance Brothers, uh, uh, I looked at him and he looked like he had a nice lifestyle I hate to say this. I didn't want to work that hard anymore. It's uh, and I wanted free time because I really like the arts. So I wanted to spend more time, you know, going to art galleries and museums and collecting art. So I thought I'd give this a try. It's worked uh, uh, out beautiful beautifully. Thing. And uh, how come you chose uh,
0: international business?
1: Well. Actually, when I was one of the last businesses I ran, as CFO, uh, we took international. And of course we had to decide what country to go to and how to structure the foreign operation. And we were all sitting around talking about this and none of us had the slightest idea how to do it. So we just decided like most American businesses to go to one of the English speaking countries. So that quickly limited us to Australia or the UK. So we came to the UK thinking they spoke the same language we did, not knowing that British English is different from American English. Uh, And the way they do business over here, of course, this was back in the 1980s. So the way they did business was very different. And so we set up our first office here. I flew over. It took us six months to get a telephone installed. It took, it took me like six visits to the bank to work them, to, to work with them so that customers could send the funds directly to the bank. So it would go right into our account instead of sending them to the business. And having the business make a physical deposit because they had never heard of this before, hmm. so uh, yeah, it was it was very different. But but the big problem was you know we had no idea whether the UK was the best market to go to. It was just the easiest, I guess.
0: Yeah. Who was your advisor in the PhD program? Sorry. Who was your advisor in the PhD program? Oh, uh,
1: I had uh, Igor Ansoff who was a big name in strategic management, one of the founders of strategic management. And a guy named Douglas Dow, who actually was a former executive. Uh, And so these were the two. I I went to a school. When I I decided to become an academic, I'd been doing some part-time teaching right, at at like uh, American University and Webster, National University and Webster, which are sort of for-profit universities. And I like that. So I went back to school to get my doctorate under the assumption that I would be a teacher. Now, research, I didn't understand research, didn't think I'd be interested in it. So I went to a school that trained teachers Hmm. for universities. So I I have a DBA, not a PhD.
0: And uh, something that is not on your CV that the audience might find interesting.
1: Well, I actually grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My grandparents were entrepreneurs in Cleveland and owned several shops in downtown Cleveland. And my father was a very successful entrepreneur when we were growing up. Uh, and had an insurance company and then started a chain of uh, sporting goods stores. So we were really pushed towards the entrepreneurial side and I looked at it and said, boy, that's not for me. Uh, Although I have my youngest brother is a serial entrepreneur and is on like his his fourth or fifth uh, venture right now. So none of us did catch on but the rest of us shied away from it.
0: so the next question is, uh, normally when I ask this question, people say, I'm not going to retire, I'm not going to stop academia, but I think this is going to uh, be different with you. So if you stop doing what you're doing today, what is the second best uh, career? Actually not the second best, but be the third
1: best <laughs> career path for you. Well, actually I'm getting to that age that I am thinking of retiring and probably will in the next few years. Uh, and I hope not to need a career after that. But, uh, the only other career I looked at before becoming an academic is I always wanted to be a lawyer because I thought it would be really nice to be able to sue people if I thought <laughs> they were doing something wrong. Right? So I didn't want to be a lawyer for the money. I wanted to be a lawyer so I could write injustice. You <laughs> know, well, if I saw people being being you know abused or something, I could help them out for free and do it. But I, I didn't have enough money to to live without an income, so I had to scratch that one off my list. <laughs> uh, regrets? Have you got any regrets by not being not being able to do that? Yeah, I wanted to be a millionaire by age thirty, and then I wanted to go and get a law degree, and then. Sue people for people who couldn't afford to hire a lawyer, right?
0: So funny.
1: Um, uh, are... <laughs>
0: <laughs> So, what are you most passionate
1: about? Oh, uh, in academia, I mean, I'm really most passionate about the arts, I really like the arts, but in academia, I didn't think that was a good thing to study. So, I think in, in academia, I'm really. I'm most interested in this idea of strategy in the international area. Now there's lots of strategy scholars out there, some brilliant people out there, Uh, but almost all of them look at strategy from a domestic perspective. And my interest is, is more in the international side. What happens when you take your competitive advantage to a different country? you have to do something different what how do you go about doing it all these all these questions that we really don't seem to know the answers to Perfect. so for me that's really interesting and currently of course we've got all this digitalization going on now that didn't happen when i first started but for the last 20 years digitalization has changed both strategy and ib and so I'm really interested, and I I wish I had more time because I'm really interested in how digital technologies are changing everything we think we know about international strategy or international business.
0: So let's talk about that, Keith. Let's talk about the next big questions in IB, next big uh, research uh, contexts or uh, puzzles.
1: Uh, What can you say? Well, I think this is it. And and, uh, as many of you will know, I'm working on a special issue on digital IB with Klaus Meyer. Uh, To me, this is the area. All my PhD students and the young scholars I work with, I push them towards this digitalization. This is where businesses already are. We're behind the curve. Marketing has been doing digital studies now for 30 years, but in international business, we're barely scratching the surface. And this digitalization is really changing the way not only existing businesses have to function, but it's opened up all these opportunities for new businesses we never heard of, like Facebooks and and, Ubers and, and Airbnbs. I mean, these didn't exist. But now we need to figure out how do you compete internationally with these new disruptive entrants when you're an existing taxi service, you're, you're an existing food delivery service or an existing hotel chain. And so there's lots of questions now. What technologies? There's so many technologies out there. I mean, a lot of the advice is, oh, you need to digitalize. Well, that's not helpful, Mm -hmm. What will be helpful is, is, you know, what technologies do you need to use for what parts of the business to help you overcome, you know, some of the problems and some of the problems we used to have, like distance, especially geographic distance, as you notice today, doesn't really exist anymore because we've got these digital technologies that instantaneously bring us together. So I think there's lots of institutional distance issues that still need to be addressed, but even a lot of those you'll be able to address with digital technologies, big data analytics that'll help you understand new countries in different ways and identify groups of potential customers. And I think this is an area that we're really missing out on.
0: I want to ask you, uh, why do you think we were, or we are slow to answer this
1: type of thinking? I think I see this a lot. I review for like 15 journals. So I do somewhere around 75 to 100 uh, article reviews a year. I really like reviewing journal articles. But the one thing I notice is most of us as academics like to study the exact same thing that's already been studied. I guess it's easier. You don't have to be as creative. You don't have to to think differently about things. You just go test the same thing that's been tested before and you might add another variable here or there. But pretty much most most of the manuscripts I see are doing the same thing that's already been done And we know this because we of course write that literature review part at the beginning that we say, you know, this has been done here and it's been done here, but no one's done it over here. It's like, so to me, I think that's the problem. It's hard to get people to, first of all, understand what's going on in the business world because many of us as academics have never been in the business world. I run into this all the time in that, you know, a lot of the young scholars go straight through school and therefore don't really know what goes on in businesses. And it might be good for them to take a sabbatical leave and actually go get a job, You know, talk to some local businesses and see if they'll let them work in it. It's, it's really eye-opening to see what really happens in business versus the theory behind what happens in business. And I think one advantage to people like me that are called mere, mid-career uh, academics, and there are a group of us, I'm not the only one out there, but I think the advantage we have is because we know how businesses work and what's going on, we know lots of potential questions that need to be answered you know, to do research. So I, had, I used to keep a list of research projects I wanted to work on but I finally threw it out because I never had time to get to them. right? It it takes a couple (laughs) of years to get this project through and then you get to the next one. So, but I think one of the big problems is this lack of of insights about what businesses really need, how we can help them best. Because to me as an academic, I think our research should be focused on answering questions that, that help address the problems managers have. Right. So, how do you, and that's my first question that I worked on now for over 25 years is how do you structure that foreign operations to make it work best? Entry modes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, you know, I have friends still in the business world and they ask me about my research and I still can't give them the answer. We have lots of research in the area, but there's still not a clear answer of how to go about deciding how to structure the operation because we've only concentrated on a small group of factors. And that's why some of my newer work is shifting now to this digital question and entry mode, right? But there's all sorts of other questions of how managers and managerial insights impact modes and things like that. You know, until we get a a more holistic view of how this works, it's hard to give advice to managers. And I think the same is true in, in many things we do, whether it's knowledge transfer or outsourcing or any of these issues we try to address.
0: Uh, Keith, uh, well, you basically answered the question on creativity, your, your suggestion is to go and talk to the actual managers or people doing the business to get creative ideas. I want to ask you about the Decade Award winning paper that you wrote. Uh, how, how did you write that? How, how, what was the, how did it
1: start? How, how did well, you accomplish that? It, it actually started when I, I went for a job interview to Cambridge and George Yip was there, and I did the interview, and George Yip took me aside. (laughs) Needless to say, I did not get the job, Uh, but George Yip took me aside, and he said, you know, one problem you have, Keith, is people can't tell what research, what of your research output you've done and what your brother did, because for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, most of my papers are done with my brother. He and I clicked and worked really well together. And so we were able to crank out research. And so he said, you really need to do a solo piece. Hmm. And so I immediately went back and I said, okay, what can I do? I'm doing entry modes, right? And, and Uh, This just happened, institutional theory was relatively new. There were very few papers on it, nothing really in the entry mode area. There's almost nothing in entry modes and performance, uh, but transaction costs was uh, quite well known in entry mode. So I tried to combine all this into one paper that I would write myself and then submit and hopefully get published. So that's really where it came from. Interesting.
0: Uh, So I want to ask you about advice, but uh, advice for, um, first of all, to young junior faculty, fresh out of MBA or fresh out of uh, college, and then to mid career people or people who have switched to uh, this profession so, first of all, is the advice going to be the same to
1: these two types of- I think principles? the advice is pretty similar. It's uh, Because the, again, the advantage that those of us that are older when we enter the profession have is we know a lot more, but we also, and this is a funny story. When I became an, my first job in academia, I was already like 38 years old. So I show up at my first conference which happened to be in Brussels, uh, and I started to introduce myself to everybody, and they just assumed I was a professor. Hmm. And every time I met someone, I had to explain, "No, oh, I'm just an assistant professor. I don't have any publications yet." And and so it was pretty embarrassing, I must say. It's uh, and so that was good incentive to to really push on the research side and and quickly move from assistant professor to a full professor.
0: What are some of the common mistakes that you see?
1: Uh, I think the first one people. is what we talked about, this idea of uh, not being creative enough in what you research, right? So simply doing more the same kind of research is you can get it published, but you're not going to build much of a reputation and without a good reputation, it's hard for people to really know what you stand for and understand what your research is. So I'm pretty much known as the entry mode guy, which is fine. I do some other research, but you know, if you if you're looking for answers on entry mode, you'll probably want to look at some of my papers because I have so many of them. It makes life easy. And so when I go to conferences and people meet me. Most of the people that introduce themselves are interested in entry modes. It just makes sense. So I have several friends that are more methods oriented. And so they actually don't have a sort of a topic specialty. And so it's tougher for them because they'll be on you know, 15 different papers on 15 different topics. And so they're really ill-defined as to what it is they do. And so, I think one piece of advice I have, whether you're a mid career <laughs> or, or an early uh, career person, is find an area that you're really passionate about and stick with it. I know it's tempting. There's always other projects out there. It's tempting to wander off and go on this project and that project and change subjects, but then you don't get known. Think of the people you know that, you know, when you think of, Here are people I know in the area that I really respect. And most of them are known because they focused on one area for a big chunk of their publications. So I think that's the first bit of advice. So find find that topic you're interested in that's new and interesting because entry modes or location choice, some of those have seen a lot of research But this digital thing is all filled with new opportunities. I'm working with some young guys now that have worked on phone apps and how phone apps can be internationalized. And this is incredibly interesting and really important because there's over a million phone apps. That's a lot of employment out there, a lot of companies. uh, The
0: visual stops again, uh, I'll
1: pause. Okay, we're back. All right, so as I was saying, this idea of, of coming up with an area that you become known as is critically important for building a reputation in our profession. Of course, the other important thing for for new scholars, I guess there are two other important things. One is especially for, for, well, I guess for both mid-career and younger people is this idea of learning how to balance the job requirements of teaching and doing a good job of teaching with the demands of finding time to do research. And this, it's a real tough balancing act. Some of us become really good teachers, but we end up spending most of our time on that, which eats into the research time. Some of us sort of abandon the good teacher goal and just do the minimum we can do and get away with in teaching to try to build more time in research. But you really need to be able to do both. You really need to to manage your time well enough that you can devote enough of it to do a good job teaching as well as find time to do research. So I, I tell the people I work with is is I tell them they should split their day. A lot of people like to do like one or two days of research and one or two days of working on teaching, but that doesn't work well because every time you stop working on research, (coughs) excuse me, you have to start up again. So what I tell my PhD students and young faculty is, find the time of day that you're most productive and take a couple hours during that time. I'm a morning person. So I, I keep all my mornings, I block them out for research. From eight o'clock in the morning till 11 or 12, it's nothing but research. I then spend all afternoon on teaching an admin task every day. Now, if I don't have any teaching or admin, like now in the summer, I would do research then too. But that way, even during the academic school year when I'm teaching and doing other things, most days I have that morning time that I get to do my research in and that's when I'm freshest. A lot of you will be fresher in the afternoon. So just flip the schedule that way. But that way you can devote and have a continuous stream of research instead of doing research on Friday And then by next Friday, you pick it up again, but you forgot what you did last Friday.
0: That was very helpful, actually, Keith. Thank you. And uh, you mentioned uh, your review a lot, your- I uh, do. I really enjoy it.
1: It's a great learning experience.
0: And as a reviewer uh, recently, especially in the recent uh, times, uh, what kind of major issues that you see that really
1: annoys a reviewer (laughs) Well, there's almost a standard three-paragraph review nowadays. Uh, The first and most important, the one one that ends up in 90, God, I hate to say 95, 98% of my reviews is the lack of a clear contribution. What is it that you're doing that's new and interesting that'll add to our knowledge? And it's amazing, as I talked before, lots of us do the same things others have done and therefore finding a contribution, something that's new and interesting is quite difficult. Hmm. And so that's, to me, that's the big one. Uh, I guess the other one that comes up all the time is the lack of theory. And in good journals like Jibs or SMJ or Academy of Management Journal, you know, Journal of Management Studies, any of these, Journal of World Business, you need theory. And you can't, you can't just have this study found this, this study found that, and therefore I'm expecting the same. You need theory is basically your argument as to why you expect this, whatever relationships you're looking at to occur. And it's a story, but I'm always amazed at the number of papers I get that the black theory. Hmm. And I guess That's my that. big complaint recently is a lot of the papers I get now are highly sophisticated methodologically, stuff I've never seen and don't understand. Hmm. But most of our data is not that good. So you can have these great scientific methods on crummy data and it's, doesn't give you anything more. So, and this is a, a an argument I'm having with some of the journals, right? Because some of the journals are really starting to, to focus more on methods and, and trying to get more precision in methods and all that. But we don't have precision in our measures. If you think of our measures of institutions, there's no precision there. We take other people's opinions that have been aggregated and we subtract them or add them to each other or do whatever, it, it's nice. It gives you some general idea, but then to be very precise that, oh yeah, no, no, we're just this little bit off. It just doesn't make sense to me.
0: Hmm.
1: So I know we like all these new methods that are out there. And again, with digitalization, there's a lot new of methods out there, but sometimes simpler methods helped make your story more understandable. So spend a little less time on the analytics and a little more time on understanding what's new and interesting.
0: My econometrics advisor at Ohio State, when I was a student, uh, he would say, when you torture the data enough, it will confess, don't do that. <laughs> exactly, So, okay. so uh, Keith, uh, thank you so much. Uh, what's the question that I should have
1: asked you, but haven't. Uh, I'm not sure I have one right offhand. Okay, but uh, I think your questions were good. I hope my answers are helpful to whoever watches the video. Thank you. And I thank you
0: for uh, inviting me for the interview. I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Keith. Thank you. Bye bye.